Passover and the Festival of Unleavened Bread were only two days away. Suddenly, Mark gets very specific about time. Up to this point, he's been somewhat vague, writing things like, at that time, or another time, or one Sabbath. But now he draws our attention and locks us in. This is no myth, no legend. This is the history Mark has been intending to tell. We have been asking the question, who is Jesus? And Mark has brought us to the answer. He is the Messiah. Now, he will show us what the Messiah has come to do. Welcome again to the God's Word, our great heritage podcast. In this episode, we'll give our attention to Mark chapter 14, the first 26 verses. Let's begin with prayer. Jesus, I will ponder now on your holy passion. With your spirit, me endow for such meditation. Grant that I in love and faith may the image cherish of your suffering, pain, and death, that I may not perish. Amen. Chapter 14, verse 1. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or the people may riot. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were not on friendly terms. They often argued and took public shots at one another. But on this point, they agree, Jesus must die. Because they feared the crowds during the Passover celebration, after all, tens of thousands of people had just proclaimed Jesus the Messiah on the previous Sunday, they said, not now, not during the festival. But that is exactly when it will happen, because they are not in control. Jesus is. And what better time than at the feast when the Jewish people celebrated how the blood of a lamb turned away death and brought them freedom from slavery. That Passover lamb pointed to Jesus, the lamb whose blood turns away God's anger at our sin and gives us eternal freedom. Verse 3, While Jesus was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, A woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. We don't know anything about this Simon the leper. Very probably he was a leper whom Jesus had healed. While Jesus is at a dinner party at his house, a woman, and we know from other gospel accounts, this was Mary, the sister of Lazarus, Lazarus, the man Jesus had just raised from the dead. Mary broke open a jar of perfume. That's how they they did it in those days. The, The jar would have a narrow neck, and to open it, they would break that neck open. She broke open the jar of perfume, and she poured it on Jesus. The whole scene would have been a bit shocking. 
Men and women typically did not recline at the same table at such dinner parties. So Mary's presence there right next to Jesus was surprising. Then, that she would pour a bottle of perfume on the guest of honor's head and, well, as the other accounts tell us, also on his feet, would have caused everyone to stare. Then, according to the other accounts, she let down her hair, something no Jewish woman would do in public, and she used her hair to wipe Jesus' feet. Nard, this perfume, was such a strong perfume, and breaking open this bottle and pouring out its contents would have caused everyone to, to smell that that strong scent and, and immediately look over that direction. So all these guests must have been a bit shocked and stunned. But at least one was stunned not by her act of devotion, but by her, at least in his mind, wasteful extravagance. John tells us in his account that it was Judas who started the grumbling, but he was joined by other disciples. Verse 4. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, Why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages, and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Nard was imported. It, it came from a great distance. And so even just a, a, a one jar of it would have been very expensive. In our dollars today, probably around $50,000. So Jesus got a $50,000 bath. That does seem a little extravagant, doesn't it? There's, after all, a lot of good things you can do with $50,000. So this makes no sense. They begin to scold her. And not just scold her, but scold her harshly. Verse 6, Jesus said, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want. But you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare me for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. If the disciples had been paying better attention, they would have known what Mary knew and what we must know. Jesus' ministry was at the end. She was witnessing his final steps to the cross. It was as if she were getting a head start on the work that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus would do in a hurry late on this coming Friday afternoon. Mary knew Jesus was about to die, and he was about to die for her. She knew that God had taken the ledger of all her indebtedness against him, all her sin, an indebtedness we could never repay, and transferred it all to the account of Jesus, and he would now pay it. But God still wasn't done. He took all the righteousness of Jesus, his perfect life of obedience, and transferred it to her. He did it because he loved her. And now the Holy Spirit put, put it in her heart to say, I love you too, Jesus, in the best way she could think of, with this extravagant gift. We too, by the power of the Holy Spirit, who has worked faith in our hearts, 
say, with our offerings and with our service and with our very lives. We love you too, Jesus. Jesus is pleased with Mary's act of devotion. He calls it a beautiful thing. And he is pleased with our humble acts of grateful devotion as well. What grace that Jesus would be pleased with our acts of gratitude. After all, he's the one who worked it in our hearts to want to do them. Jesus' rebuke of Judas and the others did not lead Judas to repentance, sadly, but apparently hardened him in his unbelief. Verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. To arrest Jesus secretly, they needed someone on the inside, a traitor. Enter Judas. What made him do it? He was, after all, a follower, a disciple of Jesus. In fact, Jesus chose him to be one of the twelve, an apostle. The other disciples trusted him enough to make him the treasurer of their group. But somewhere along the line, Judas started helping himself to the funds. I wonder if at first his conscience bothered him. But then the more he stole, it bothered him less and less. His greed became like a monster in his heart that he fed and he fed until it grew and it grew so big until the day when it pushed out of his heart any love he ever had for Jesus, any longing for Jesus' forgiveness. So now he rather calmly negotiates a price to betray his friend to those who would kill him. So firmly Satan had a hold of him to convince him to do this awful thing. And then, once he did that, then to convince him a few days later, the best course of action now would be to commit suicide. There's a warning here for us, because you and I, well, we're flawed like Judas. Maybe, like Judas, our weakness is greed. A willingness to set aside Jesus for a few more dollars. Or maybe it is envy that can't stand to see the success of others and so always finds a way to tear them down. Or maybe the monster in our hearts is lust, fantasies that we indulge in in the hope that no one ever finds out about it. So what do we do? What do we do about the monster living in our hearts? Well, don't feed it. Kill it. How? We confess our sins. We lay them out in the open before God and acknowledge our wretchedness. And then we flee to the cross and cling to our Savior in the promise of forgiveness we find in his nail-scarred hands. Verse 12. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, Where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? It is now Thursday, the day before the Jewish leaders will succeed in killing Jesus. One last thing Jesus will do for his disciples. He will give them a miracle meal. The setting was the Passover meal, commemorating that time when the Israelite families took a lamb, a perfect lamb, 
slit its throat, took the blood, and put it on it on the doorposts so that death would pass over. Verse 13. So Jesus sent two of his disciples, telling them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. Notice how Jesus demonstrates here that he is in control of the situation. Verse 16. The disciples, I'm sorry, verse 17. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. How did they respond to Jesus' shocking announcement that one of them would betray him? By saying, or asking, it's not me, is it? They knew their sinful hearts. They knew what they were capable of. So do we. Even on our best days, we are capable of the greatest evil. Verse 20. It is one of the twelve, he replied. One who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. What more could Jesus have done for Judas? What more could he have done to call him to repentance? But Judas was not willing. Verse 22. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. On the night he was betrayed, the pastor says in the words of institution, quoting the Apostle Paul, on the night he was betrayed, let that sink in. To whom is Jesus giving this most precious of all gifts? To those who are worthy of his love, who somehow have earned it? No, no. To those who that very night would betray him and deny him and desert him. To whom does Jesus give this precious meal? To sinners. Still today, what makes us worthy to receive this amazing gift? It's not our goodness, but recognizing just how desperately we need him. Jesus gave this supper for you, for your forgiveness. Here he comes to you, even as he was there that night with his disciples. He comes to feed you with his grace and to gather you as his family around his table. We come, sinners all, 
And under the form of bread and wine, he places into our mouths the very body and blood by which he won our forgiveness. Verse 28. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Next week, the agony of the garden and his arrest. Now the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.